This is a public service announcement brought to you by me, Edit A, an alter ego residing deep inside your interviewer's head. An alter ego is not a disease, but a condition, and it cannot be spread by direct or indirect contact with another human being. It can, however, be aggravated in the presence of children. Side effects include, but not limited to, nausea, self-loathing, mild to moderate alopecia, dyslexia, temporary paralysis, delirium, confusion, and mass hysteria. Welcome to the Thousand Seahorses Adoption Agency podcast, where we give you the best Q-tips for survival. Jeez, you're worse than those annoying talking elevators that just won't shut up. This is Spoke, where grey matters. Yeah, yeah, your fancy interview magazine. But if you do want to save the seahorses, visit www.theseahorsetrust.org. When your first guest was asked to describe himself in one word, he said, multifaceted. Who says that? Sure, the man has been many things. A curator of words, a builder of things, and a cutter up seas. But an even more apt description would have been Mad Hatter. I mean, have you seen his hair? He is father to Jamelia, the mighty queen of Naboo, and author to the Romance of Salt, a tale of the lowly sodium chloride. They both tackle very uninteresting questions. In the movie, the queen asks, to lose it or not to lose it. In the book, the author asks, to iodize it or not to iodize it. I don't think... Then as the real Mad Hatter says, you probably shouldn't talk. So Anil, you've worked for the Debonair magazine in the past. Uh, what was the most unexpected thing about being an editor there? Too many unexpected things. I, and it's been a long time, so I don't, don't even remember one particular incident or two particular incidents. But I do remember having unexpected visitors from way back who... Uh, suddenly would meet me somewhere and said, ah, Anil, we must meet. And I'd say, of course, uh, shall we meet at the club? And they said, no, 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 let's meet in your office. <laughs> and I couldn't figure this out till uh, one day one very famous writer came up, young, young man, no doubt, and he sat there and across the table. And all the time he kept looking outside the door. And then I realized he expected na naked ladies to walk by. <laughs> which, of course, didn't happen at uh, the most boring-looking secretaries on earth. <clears throat> I, I tried to glamorize them, but uh, failed badly. <laughs> so, And that, that was actually a good introduction to uh, anyone coming to my office at Debonair, because when they came in, it was already stayed. Uh, nothing flamboyant. We didn't have any posters. It was a very elegant office. The, uh, the thing about Debonair, when I took it up, I went in clearly with the understanding that the, the center of attention was this aptly named centerfold. Right. And <clears throat> unlike my predecessor, Vinod Mehta, who, who treated it as something which you had to get rid of quickly and did a very shoddy job of it, I said we have to pay attention to it, so which I did, and with the result that we got a lot of good-looking young women coming up and volunteering, volunteering to shed their clothes. Um, 
for some reason, most of them uh, made one condition that I should not be present at the shoot, which uh, which was slightly disappointing. <laughs> but uh, uh, it, it it really was, but a different time. You know, you must realize that we are talking of 1980, and uh, India was different then. I don't think I would have trouble getting good models now, but then no one is interested in looking at centerfolds. Why do you think that was, though? The fact that they didn't want you around? Why did they? I, I took it as a compliment. This, you know, they, they, they thought the photographer was neutral. He was going to look more into the camera, whereas I would look at them, which perhaps is the reason. Well, I... Having no option, I treated it as a compliment. Just if I may continue sure. with Debenet, <clears throat> because there's something I'm proud of, uh, which is that we did emphasize the writing part, mm -hmm. much like uh, Playboy did. Uh, Playboy interviews were famous, and so were ours. I did a lot of them, running into eight or ten pages. Oh. Uh, we had... We had long, long articles, and which now I realize would be called long form. No one called them long form then. We had short stories. <clears throat> now, what I did was, which was very inventive, uh, the centerfold, uh, as you can see, would be a double, double spread. Uh, so I said, what do we do behind the centerfold? Not only do we get two pages, but the facing page, so we're getting a three-page spread, which is not possible in any magazine. So I used that for the short story, and mm -hmm. I got this incredible illustrator called Avinash Godbole. He's still around, works in advertising. Got him to illustrate all our stories, and they were kind of cutting edge, uh, absolutely cutting edge, and wonderful illustration, one of which got me into trouble, which was that someone had written about and it's actually, now that I think of it, quite uh, topical about the abuse by the staunch believers in Hinduism of Hinduism, of the religion. And to illustrate that, he had that classic picture of Hanuman tearing open his chest to show Ram Sita Lakshman inside. What he did was, the Hanuman tears open his uh, chest and inside are Ram, Lakshman, Sita, quite recognizable by their bows and arrow and so on, but they're skeletons. So, <clears throat> I apparently heard the religious feelings of all Hindus. So there was a court case. I had this policeman landing up from Yavatmal who'd come to arrest me. Oh. And I... Uh, I quickly said, you know, it's lunchtime. Why don't you go for lunch? But I was trying to contact my lawyer who's absent. So one of the minions took him for lunch. I disappeared. Uh, then I was summoned to Yavatmal. I went there in court. Uh, and as I came out of court, there was a long line of people waiting to meet me. The last man there was a, a puny little guy who warmly shook my hands and said, I'm the one who brought the case against you. <laughs> uh, 
There are many such stories of Debenair. The other thing which happens, and it happened even just last week, I meet people uh, slightly younger than me. Uh, we're all in eminent positions. They're, great. They're, they're CEOs of hospitals, they're great engineers, uh, and so on. And they said, Debonair. We read Debonair in college. So it had an impact. It certainly had an impact. And what happened actually, and I like to believe that the, that the pictures led them to buy the magazine, which incidentally was the highest selling magazine in the country, more than India today. And then they read it. And what I achieved, I think, was that people were not then hiding it. Even in drawing rooms, you saw the magazine. You legitimized, legitimized it in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And then I had my little daughter looking at it. Uh, she pointed out to the new look. And my wife and I said, yeah, she's not wearing clothes. And we treated it as absolutely normal, which I think influenced her attitude. Right. Instead of saying, chi, chi, chi. Over the years, your career has shifted from left to right brain. Uh, but what about the world of math and engineering that you left behind? Uh, is there anything that you miss about it at all? I, I don't think so. I, it's, I don't think I miss anything of what I have finished doing because I treat it as a phase of my life, a phase of my career. Uh, it was a very different world <clears throat> as an engineer or doing mathematics. Uh, one dealt with a different set of people to start with. You even taught, didn't you? Different set of problems. Uh, as an engineer, I would be going on building sites. I would be talking to people I would not meet socially. It was a very different world. The first thing I learned, because I spent a lot of time in Britain and unknowingly, uh, my accent had become very British. And <clears throat> what I found was that uh, when I was speaking to engineers on the phone, they didn't understand a word of what I was saying. So I deliberately to Indianize my accent, which uh, stuck. But uh, th that was one thing. And the second thing was that I think we underrate the kind of work that engineers do because unlike, let's say, what a journalist does. It's not seen. Right. I think an engineer's work is best done when it's not noticed, because then it's working. Uh, like building services engineering, which I specialized in. If it's done well, you won't have a fire, for example. So if you notice it, which means that the building is burning, <laughs> something's gone wrong. Right. So, you know, it's a different world altogether. Uh, and, and, and you deal with it because that's part of your life. That's your whole career at that moment. Then you switch and something else becomes your life. Like when I went to cinema, cinema was my life. Right. But why would you regret it? You've done a good job. There was a lingering regret, which is very small, which... Uh, when I announced to uh, my clients, uh, well, Feroz Kudyanwala, the architect's clients, that I was leaving, the State Bank of India was one of the biggest clients. <clears throat> and there was a Mr. Borker, who was the chief engineer. And he said, 
why are you abandoning engineering? You can't. And he said, I'm making you an offer. You do what you want, journalism, whatever, whatever. But on the side, you set up your own company and I'll be your first client. And what an offer that was. That's high praise. Yeah. <laughs> Something I remember with pride. So Anil, why don't you tell us a little about your time as the head of the NFDC when the film Gandhi was made? Well, when I went in as a young man, and I think I was taken there because I was writing a lot about cinema. <clears throat> so my first job was to look at the scripts. I had all these young young men in kurtas and jolas coming in. No women? Mm, not really. The women directors came later, but initially it was people like Saeed Mirza, Ketan Mehta, Vidhu Vinod Chopra, I mean, you name them, the whole galaxy of people. The parallel cinema types would come from FTII. <clears throat> they had these wonderful scripts. And uh, we gave five lakhs. And people actually made films in that. Uh, their contribution was their talent, which we monetize so that, you know, we are giving actual money and they're giving their talent. And that's how the films are made. And the, the, the five years I spent there were, were very, very enjoyable because uh, there's so many, so many new people coming into it with all these wonderful scripts uh, that, you know, they had these ideas of making a different kind of cinema and they did. And we tried to show them to the public, which was a challenge, but, but it was wonderful. And then one day I get a call and the operator was, was overly excited, which she normally wasn't. And she said, uh, Sir Richard Attenborough on the line. <laughs> and uh, I knew she wouldn't take the liberty of joking with me. I said, put him on. I talked to him and he said, uh, Richard Attenborough here, and uh, can you give me an appointment? I'd like to meet you. So I said, of course, Sir Richard. So he came the next day. Uh, our office was in Nariman Point. He was staying at the Oberoi. He came across, and of course, I, I could have barely contained my excitement, obviously. <laughs> and uh, he wanted money to make Gandhi, the film. And I said, uh, what kind of uh, money are you looking for? And he said, five crores. <laughs> and I started laughing. Uh, and I think he was slightly offended. <laughs> he, he said, is that funny? I said, well, in a way it is, because the figure five is fine, but the problem with the zeros. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's what we give. And five crores is—we've uh, never had as much money in the, as that in the whole of NFDC. So anyway, anyway, we parted. He called me the next day and said, "May I see you again?" So we came, and he said, "I will take it." Uh, and he said, "Give me a letter saying you're going to part finance the film. Don't mention a figure." Right. And I will use that as leverage to get funds from abroad. I said, I'll gladly do that. 
The story doesn't end there because what happened was that uh, Indira Gandhi was a prime minister and she used to read a book before going to sleep and somehow uh, Richard managed to smuggle his script across to her. And she, being a cultured person, must have heard of Richard Attenborough anyway. So she apparently read it. Picked up the phone the next morning, rang the Minister of Information Broadcasting and said that we must do this film. So then, of course, the bureaucracy swung into action. Right. The, the PMs involved. Then the bureaucrats looked at this saying, ये गांधी पे फिल्म बनाएगा ये भी गोरा आदमी कौन कौन देखेगा ये फिल्म एंड दे सेड द पीएम इज नॉट गिवन रिटन ऑर्डर्स वी सडनली हैव दिस थिंग एंड वी हैव टू डू इट एंड इट्स गोइंग टू बी अ ह्यूज फ्लॉप लेटर ऑन देल बी एन इंक्वायरी इंस टू व्हाई दिस मनी वाज गिवन एंड फाइव क्रोस दैट टाइम वाज अ लॉट ऑफ मनी राइट व्हाई वाज दिस मनी गिवन Holds authority, and then we will be posted out of our jobs into some remote area. So we must protect our backsides, which is how a bureaucrat always works. So they decided to set up a separate film company called Film India, consisting of the shareholders being all the top producers of cinema in this country, the, the commercial cinema. The bureaucrats decided this. The, the bureaucrats sort of setting up this company okay. so people like gp sippy br chopra uh, you you just name them a whole lot and each was supposed to contribute a small amount and by the way guaranteed by the government of india so should the film fail they would get their money back but in spite of that they didn't want to be part of this ये कहाँ फंसा दिया ये एंड रिचर्ड एडनबर्ड कॉलिंग एवरी वन डार्लिंग ये डार्लिंग ने कहाँ फंसा दिया होल फिल्म इंडस्ट्री ऑफ इंडिया इज गॉन बिकॉज एवरी वन वॉज एनी वन वॉज इन दैट फ्लाइट एंड मेकिंग फन दिस डार्लिंग एंड गोरा एंड स्टफ लाइक दैट because they all believe that no one would want to see film on gandhi to start with anyway i read the script i was moved to tears and i remember meeting richard for breakfast and it and the script was wasn't being bandied about very few people had it but he he had given me the copy so when i told him how much i liked him he got off the table embraced me hugged me and wept he said, i've been dying to hear these words wow anyway uh i later fought with the ministry saying all these guys all these producers don't want to do this the government of india is guaranteeing this why don't you give nfdc the money and we want to do this i believe in this film and if we if the film fails you're going to guarantee the money right if it succeeds nfdc will get money it needs so finally that view prevailed the film went on to make huge amounts of money and still comes into nfdc as it keeps being shown on tv and so yes. on yes and it won all the oscars so that's my contribution but 
I was a bit of a villain for these young filmmakers. You know, they said, you give us five lakhs and you give this foreigner five crores. <laughs> well, but the young filmmakers now no longer young are still my friends. So that's the story. As Queen of Naboo in Star Wars, your daughter said in a quote that packs a punch but drops a punctuation, the day we stop believing democracy can, work is the day we lose it. What about India's democracy is working, Anil? And what isn't? I, for one comma, think y'all have lost it. Period. Yeah, we've lost it. and uh, But I don't know when this interview is going to go on, but it might get dated. And I hope it gets dated. I hope by the time this comes out and people watch it or listen to it, Indian democracy will be back on track. Uh, <clears throat> that's the hopeless optimist in me talking. <laughs> because I think we are at a very bad stage in our national life, mm -hmm. completely. Recent events, uh, have, you know, the attacks on students and so on. Uh, are, I, I think an example of that, a very vivid and very unsavory example of that. And what, what amazes me is that the political dispensation, which on one hand seems to be so keen to get international attention in a favorite way, does not see the repercussions of what they do in this country and how they manage this country. And uh, that is one part. The second part is that there has been now created for the first time since independence an actual divide between communities. And it's not just between communities. It's also a divide between those who are considered not patriotic enough. Uh, the anti-national, the Khan market gang, the Tukre Tukre gang, and phrases like that, which are so awful. And everyone forgets that we are all Indians. And almost all of us, and I would say without exception, uh, believe in our country. And we want it to be a good country, a better country, something which is good for every citizen. And then what happens is when you divide it, and you create these us and them kind of feeling, it is detrimental to what happens in the country. Right. And it hap and it, it affects every walk of life, not just social, but it's going to hurt the economy, it's going to hurt everything that you hold dear and everything that's important. Is anything working though? Well, uh, I don't know if anything's working. Uh, certainly what has come out is hate. And you know, I'd like to go back, uh, since we are talking of this subject, to what happened at around 1947. And don't forget partition, which must be the, one of the most traumatic beginnings for nationhood, mm -hmm. with lakhs and lakhs of people killed, a, a kind of communal divide between Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, and so on. Uh, manifested in the most violent, brutal ways uh, across the north and in Bengal. Now to have recovered from that, and I, I give full credit to Jawaharlal Nehru. Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated uh, 
in 48, so he didn't have enough time. And Sardar Patel died soon after. <clears throat> There's a towering personality of Nehru, who by his own example was so beyond all these divides that people, even after tra the trauma of partition, lived together. Now, that is something which people forget about, that it is such a towering achievement, that it's something we must really not forget at all. That India lived as a secular nation, the enmity between communities somehow got submerged. I don't think it, the feelings ever went away, but what now has happened in, in the US, for example, that you may have anti-black feelings, a white American, but he or she will not express them. Right. And when you stop expressing them, pretty soon it becomes submerged in you. What is happening now is it's, it's perfectly okay to express these feelings. You know, which is the beginning of the end for me. You grew up around strong, independent women. Your mother was even a badass feminist writer, and your father was a lawyer. But in what ways was he also a feminist? Uh, by the way, my father was not a lawyer. He was a, a, a oh, finance guy. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> I'm glad you're not a lawyer, because <laughs> you would have not let me talk. But uh, finance people are generally quieter. Uh, my mother was a feminist, but again, she was a quiet feminist. So we never had a, a kind of rhetoric at the dining table, feminist rhetoric. And it's only later when I grew up and got aware of things like feminism and so on, I realized my mother was one of the first feminists. And if you look at her short stories, mm -hmm. that... Uh, they are a very early expression of feminism. Uh, her uh, stories had these very strong women uh, at the forefront. And, you know, that plus my father's att attitude, uh, because he, was, he went to study in England. Uh, we traveled all across India since he was in the railways. <clears throat> We did not talk about caste. We did not talk about religion. And it sounds almost corny to say so. But without knowing it, we had become real Indians. Because these divisions didn't matter to us. We had friends. We liked them or didn't like them, depending on what they were. Not because, you know, because of the kind of people they were, not what uh, what their religion was or, or what Indian. their caste was. All these things didn't matter. We didn't even think about it. Even today, and I find this a bit of a handicap if I'm writing about politics and elections, that I don't understand caste equations. And it's still important in India to, to understand that. My mother was a very strong woman, <clears throat> but in a quiet way. Uh, she led the Maila Samiti, she was uh, president of this and that and so on. And uh, uh, as a young woman, of course, which is an aspect I don't know except through photographs, she learned horse riding, wearing a nine-yard sari. Can you imagine that? Uh, she did hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat fighting. 
she learned to use a sword, wow. clubs, all that. And and don't forget, we are talking of 1930s. Uh, it, it's quite amazing, actually. And I actually didn't didn't understand what an incredible woman my mother was till very late. Uh, now, when I look at the pictures, I said, oh, gosh, I underestimated her. <clears throat> and as a child, you know, you're always critical of your parents. Uh, and she learned English uh, much later in life because of my father being married to him. Uh, she did her graduation in Sanskrit. So, but I, I said, I used to think to myself as a teenager, my mother doesn't speak English so well. You know, we're always critical like that. It's only as I grew up and became a little wiser, I realized what a remarkable woman she was. Right. So one of my favorite writers, Muriel Barbary, said, beautiful things should belong to beautiful souls. And the beautiful truth is that single moths can only belong to the beautiful rich souls. Anil, you've said well. that... You're okay with people drinking their whiskey any way they like it because it's ultimately about personal taste. But if taste is what ultimately matters, then why not just start a whiskey club? Why a single malt club? What's a whiskey club? Uh, whiskey clubs means any social gathering. Uh, people come for dinner, people go to the Taj, people do go to friends' houses. They all drink whiskey. So how is it different from anything else? <clears throat> Single malt is a speciality. It, there is something to savor, something to discern one bottle from another. Uh, there are different flavors, different tastes. There's the degrees of uh, maltiness, the degrees of smokiness. Uh, where, where the whiskey is made, that makes a difference. The waters make a difference. Uh, you you look at what the Japanese did. Uh, they tried, Santori tried to do something with scotch, which they couldn't call scotch, but whiskey. And they tried to imitate it for years and years and years and failed. And the whiskey was pretty miserable. Rumors were that they were importing water from Scotland, but that didn't seem to help. But then something changed, and no one has figured out why. And suddenly, uh, Japanese single malts become about the best in the world. We had single malts in India. Well, we had one single malt in India made by McDowell, which was probably the worst single malt in the world. <laughs> I thought, till I tasted an Australian single malt, which was even worse. But we now have three or four Indian single malts, which are pretty respectable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everyone's learning the art because there's a demand, because I suppose single malt clubs start, people begin to appreciate it. So, if you have a discerning audience, a discerning palette. A palette. No, but if, if people who make these whiskeys say, okay, there's a market for it, there is a discerning audience for it, then they will devote their attention to it. They'll get specialists, you know, to, they'll take care, basically, which is how everything improves. Right. Right. <clears throat> uh, 
what does a single malt club do? In a sense, they are like critics. Now, a critic is important to books, for example, or to music, so on. Uh, now, there's, there are not too many critics who write about single malts, but the fact that they're clubs, people talk about it. I think that news filters to the, the people who make the malts. I think he should have started a whiskey education club because most Indians think they're drinking whiskey, but it's actually rum. And even their rum isn't technically rum. Yes, because clearly no one gives a dram. <clears throat> Interestingly, though, one reason scotch gets its unique taste is because the soil in Scotland apparently holds a lot of salt. There are, I believe, recurring themes in all of our lives, Anil, and salt may just be yours. The man did put salt to paper. And he worked for a rather salty magazine once. So this previous question made me think. Genetically, Indians, like single malts, are also mostly single origin. And yet this country is more like the unblended states of America. You had prophesied, albeit regretfully, at one of your lit fests that Hindus and Muslims cannot coexist. What kind of an unblendery is that? Who said that? Actually, at the 2019 Lit Fest, you did. I did? Yes. I said Hindus and Muslims? Cannot coexist. And you, you expressed uh, regret at saying that. Uh... Uh, I said that because I think present examples are showing that. Uh, I don't think I would say that as something which is a, a blanket condemnation of, of this country. Because I've just given you an example of secularism in spite of partition. But, uh, well, is it just it, was it just Secularism repressed? worked and it would have continued to work and unless uh, a, a villain called L.K. Advani, who now become now a respected figure because he's got, gone old, uh, he uh, started that Rathyatra and which went and the demolition of Babri Masjid. And I think that's where the rot started. Uh, I would also say that uh, Hindus and Muslims have this, particularly from the majority Hindu side, an antagonistic feeling, a feeling of uh, great historical hurt, which is ridiculous, uh, because the Mughal invent, uh, actually the, even before that, they destroyed temples and so on. Now, if you're a mature person, you say, okay, these things happened. That's history. You can't say that with today's attitudes and perceptions and today's knowledge, you can't then transpose it back to a few hundred years and say that they should have behaved like this because that that never happens. But But there isn't a statute of limitations on these things, right? I mean, people don't seem to forget? People don't seem to forget because they're not allowed to forget. And I think this is the point I've been making uh, right through this conversation, which is that if people are made to forget because of, let's say, the examples set by people like Nehru and those who followed him, like Indira Gandhi, for example, uh, people will not forget, but it's something important. And, and that is what we must realize. That is it top of your mind or is it submerged? 
What I think I meant to say from that quote, which uh, you have unearthed from somewhere, uh, is that human beings are deeply flawed and vastly prejudiced mm -hmm. across the world. I think civilization comes in doing away with those prejudices and doing away with them very, very consciously, very deliberately. It is not a process which happens, but it's a process which you can make happen. And the way it happens, and the way it happened with me and my two sisters was because of what my parents were. Omission. Yes. So it's possible to get rid of these uh, uh, feelings, however old they are, you know, however ingrained they are in your psyche, if you've been brought up in, in that way, to consider them unimportant. So do you think by not talking about these issues like you didn't growing up, it's, it's the first step in, you know, making them less important? Uh, uh, absolutely. You have to talk about it. You have to, and you have to talk about it, not shout about it. And I think that's the difference between what is happening now. People are shouting about it. And there's, uh, there's an incident in today's paper uh, where <clears throat> a friend of ours who's a sailor goes to Thailand and, and he wants to hire a crew. And uh, the people say, but are you Hindu? Now, he's taken aback. He's in Thailand. And he said, why is this question relevant? They said, no, no, it was because we've had a lot of Hindus coming in and they, they want a Hindu crew and we only have a Muslim crew left. I was shocked out of his wits, you know, hearing this in another country. But this is what is happening now. And this is what we have to overcome by talking about it, by writing about it. Uh, it's not going to be easy because the, the seeds of division have been planted very deliberately. They're being watered every day and they're growing very fast. You have also in the past argued against the notion that freedom of expression is being undermined in India. Do you remain on the same side of that debate? You know, by qualifying freedom of expression, you've essentially disqualified it. Maybe she has a point. Well, uh, look who's being clever. Uh, but freedom of expression, of course, is being undermined today without the slightest doubt. And I've, I've, I've dismayed that journalists uh, are now not being fearless. <clears throat> you know, when I was part of journalism, when I was an editor, what, what was on our minds? It wasn't uh, these divides. And we weren't, we weren't scared of saying that we shouldn't write this because the government will do something. It was always a question of, all right, is your proprietor on your side or not? The proprietor of your newspaper, magazine, whatever. Is he on the same page? <clears throat> you never worried about retribution from the powers, from authorities. Now, what is happening is the moment you say something which is strong, considered anti-national just because you're being critical, Apparently, you get a phone call from Delhi, and it has happened to a lot of owners. And uh, the example of NDTV, 
which is one of the few independent channels, being constantly being harassed with tax cases and so on. Now, these are something new. These things are new, but what dismays me is that very few journalists are actually fighting back. Uh, major newspapers, with one or two honorable exceptions, are, are uh, getting very subdued. How, how much of this fear do you think is fear of, you know, retribution, as you said, from the government vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, just the people? But I think the, 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 the fear of retribution of the government is very real because the government has shown it in many cases and not just with the media, but in other cases, uh, whether it's with the Statistical Institute of India, whether it's the Election Commission, the one dissident member of the Election Commission, you might remember out of the three uh, election commission members, one was constantly questioning things, and he seemed to be, in that sense, anti-establishment. Once his term is over, they, he is being raided, his son has been raided, his family, everyone's facing uh, harassment. Now, these these are not subtle hints. Not and I think this is where things have changed. They are in your face, they're blatant, they're unashamed. The power of the government is being wielded like a huge giant club. By club, I don't mean a club where you go and drink single malt, but something you beat people with, a stick, um, an iron rod, and it's being flashed very deliberately. Fall in line or else. So we are in terrible times. These days, the problem is that you humans are constantly in an offensive state of mind. What? I'm so offended by that. Well, the world may be getting warmer, Greta, but India is full of snowflakes. You know, it couldn't be truer what Salman Rushdie rather poignantly said. What is freedom of expression? Without the freedom to offend, it ceases to exist. As do I. I offend, therefore I am. There's a remarkable account, Anil, in your book, The Romance of Salt, about this massive hedge that the British planted in order to control the passage of salt within India. Everyone knows about the Dandi March, but very few know about this early form of hedging. Well, I didn't know about it either it, until I started doing research. And it was remarkable that they actually built a hedge right across India, uh, from west to east, uh, just to control the salt trade. Of course, now salt is so ubiquitous and so cheaply available that it's no longer uh, an important commodity. But we forget that salt at one time was very precious. And that's why... Uh, in that book, I also talk about all the options that Mahatma Gandhi considered for a major march, and there were many, many options which were discussed. And Mahatma Gandhi, being the genius he was, found the simplest but most effective and the most telling symbol, which was salt, which, right. which is so central to a human being. Uh, but the hedge was... Uh, um, incredible thing, which I, I, I don't think it's talked about, and I think most people don't know about it. And actually, 
I must confess, I have not seen it. <laughs> I would like to see it. But well, apparently there's not a whole lot of it left because... There is a lot of it left. There, there isn't actually from what I read. Oh, uh, okay. you know, there, there were a couple of people who tried looking for remnants and they couldn't really find anything. Uh, but it was 2,500 kilometers for your book at, uh, at, at one point. Well, it may still be there, but I'm not hedging my bets. <laughs> well, I'm going to tweet Trump that idea so he can kill two birds with one hedge. He can stop border crossings and... It's great for the environment. Shit, never mind then. Also, plant that hedge doesn't really have the same ring to it anyway. George Orwell said in his book 1984, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Isn't the trend of enhancing Indian mythology to make it seem uh, more progressive and cool also a way of controlling the past? But I'm not sure it's a way of controlling the past. It's, I think it's a, a Mishra party was the one who I think started the ball rolling, possibly Devdath Patnaik. And uh, though we've all been brought up on these stories from childhood, uh, how, how did I learn about Indian mythology? Uh, so my mother, as a child, telling me these stories, <clears throat> which all seemed wonderful and so on. But But they were very clearly belonging to a time, a mythological past, and you appreciated them as such. Um, Amish Tripathi, by the way, if you can indulge me, uh, I can tell you the story of this young man uh, being sent to me by a friend saying that, look, he's a banker, but he thinks he's a writer and he's written a book. Would you take look at the manuscript. Now, something I discourage because who wants to read manuscripts when there's so many books to read? But I couldn't say no to my friend, so in walks in Amish with this manuscript, which I read diligently over the next few days, making copious notes for improvement and so on. But what I didn't like was the fact that he'd made Shiva, we're talking the first one, uh, the very first book. Uh, and he had made Shiva into speak very contemporary language, saying, oh, hell, and stuff like that. And, and I thought that was taking away from the majesty of, you know, the god. Plus, it was written more like a, a, a kind of a thriller kind of thing. And so Amish came to me after I'd read it. I gave him all the improvements which later I discovered he had ignored completely, <laughs> which is probably why he sold the book and sold massive quantities of it. Uh, he did think I was a good mascot because I launched every book of his uh, subsequently too. And he still, after so many years, will not call me by my first name. He still calls me Mr. Dharka. So what he did and then what subsequently other people have done is to make all these mythological stories as something that we can re relate to <clears throat> uh, because the language is more immediate, is more contemporary, the stories are told in a fast-paced fashion. I don't think it's a throwback, which is probably the, your question. I, I don't think it's a throwback. I, I don't think it's wanting to cling to a glorious past or something like that. It's just the fact that 
we suddenly discovered that we have this huge mine, a gold mine of stories, which we have not used. Because being, being a writer, you had to be westernized. And I think that is part of the problem. So we were second-rate novelists, not because we were not going into our own field. To, to diverge a little, it's someone like Chetan Bhagat. Why, why is he so successful? Because he addressed contemporary issues of interest to young people. When he wrote about a college campus, all, all the students who lived in college campuses said, hey, that's us. Uh, so the whole, I, I think writing in India has changed in that way. Uh, you have one, one stream, which is mining um, mythological stories. The other one is writing about contemporary issues in a more relatable way to, to the young. So they, they think of these things as something that could happen to them or have happened. Right. And, and, the, and the mining is fine and even, you know, rewriting maybe in a more contemporary way. I think the question was more, you know, when, when you enhance, you know, what you have mined by adding your own narrative to it, um, you know, are you not in a way trying to change the past narrative of India? Well, I'm not sure that uh, at least the writers I know, I don't think they're trying to change the past. Not deliberately anyway. Yeah, not deliberately. <clears throat> Of course, now it's it's a bandwagon. So, and it's not something I read. So I don't know. I, I'm really not an expert on this and how it's developed. <clears throat> but I think the uh, the enhancements of the past, which you refer to, comes more from people who do not read anything at all. Uh, which is true of a lot of people. Which is true of a lot of people. Unfortunately, it's true of most politicians. Uh, especially the present lot of politicians. And therefore, if the prime minister of the country says that India invented plastic surgery because of Ganesh, uh, and and then you realize that he hasn't got his tongue in cheek, he actually means it. Or people say that uh, that India invented flying because there are references to you know, little vehicles going into the air. And, and and all these people who take these things literally deny the power of imagination. Right. Which I think is also part of our problem, that we are denying the power of imagination. And the people who wrote all these stories had that power of imagination. So they could imagine flying in the air when there was no flying in the air. So we are actually denying our real past. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. So cricket is a very different game today from what it was even T-minus 20 years ago. And a lot has been gained, no doubt. But has anything been lost? Well, I think a lot, lot is lost because <clears throat> T20 is a, a, a thrilling game, no doubt. But it is for people who don't understand the subtleties of the game. Uh, and... I think anyone who really knows cricket knows that it has to be a test match. Now they're talking of shortening the test match to four days, which I think is ridiculous. Uh, a five-day test match is what it should be because there's so many variables. 
unlike a stupid game like baseball, which uh, T20 aspires to be, in a sense, which is just, you know, you hit cross bat and hope for a six. Yeah, they even have the cheerleaders. Or in a baseball, you hope for a home run. And, and they even have cheerleaders. Yeah, all that. So, <clears throat> whereas what distinguished cricket was... The, so many variables which you have to look at. First of all, unlike baseball, the ball is hitting the ground. Therefore, the state of the ground, the pitch, comes into play. Then over five days, the way that pitch changes, the deterioration of speech, the deterioration <laughs> of the pitch, uh, how that affects the game. Now, in the beginning, the fast bowler is effective. As the pitch degenerates, the spinner comes into play. How weather conditions affect it? The ball swings more if the atmosphere is heavy. How in England it's different because of the weather there. How in Australia the pitches are hard. The ball bounces more. India, the ball spins more. It's all these factors, and there are many more that I can relate. That makes it so int interesting, intriguing. It, it's a challenge for the batsmen. It's a challenge for the bowlers. And that's what makes a game complex. You see, when you, when you play T20, you take the complexity out of the game. You do introduce other factors, which now there are a lot of variations in the way that people bowl, etc., etc., which then carries on, in a way, into test cricket. Uh, people play... Uh, they, uh, they scope much more quickly than they used to. It's, it's also very... Which is why, actually, test cricket now has improved from what it used to be. You're too young to remember, and actually even I am too young to remember, an era where the fifth match of a series had no time limit. It was a match to the finish. Now, England had gone to South Africa, and the fifth match, fifth test match, hadn't finished by the tenth day. Tenth day, mind you. Wow. And they had to catch their ship back, so the match <laughs> was abandoned, as it had to be, because they couldn't afford to miss the ship. Wow. Uh, so that became incredibly boring, and, and the most boring matches were, in, in, when I was growing up, were India and Pakistan because India and Pakistan had too much riding on cricket because national pride was involved so no one took risks so if you, you had 180 runs scored in one day that was considered okay it was terrible to watch and every and your greatest achievement was drawing the match which, which is what happened to all the matches but with the advent of one day cricket and now T20s, people score faster. It's very f much in favor of the batsman now, isn't it? I mean, the game. No, not, not, not in Test cricket for sure. The, the T20s. But, but and T20 the is definitely a batsman's game. It's uh, the poor bowlers are cannon fodder, kind of thing. So, but the crowd loves it, and this is where I think there is a problem. That if you see the the crowds coming to see T20 or packed stadiums everywhere, even now with 
one day internationals you don't get a packed stadium uh it was very sad when uh, india had gone to the west indies you had empty stands uh, uh never happened before test matches hardly draw a crowd except in two countries which is australia in england and australia these are two countries which still have some regard for the game in in england even in county matches you get a, a nice crowd so in, in india who goes to see a ranji trophy match no one does but instead of tinkering with the game what people have to do is especially in india is to make the game more attractive for the crowd in terms of facilities i will never now go to a stadium having been to vankade it is a trial you have to walk distances the seats are hard you're packed in and the loose stink the food is terrible now these are things which can easily be changed That's a good you point. make it comfortable you make it attractive to the the crowd to come in and if they could just start with that i think you would have a change now in 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 australia people sit on the grass yes. and they're drinking beer and and uh, there are little pools where uh, people actually go for a little <laughs> a dip you know i mean these are little things but they make a difference on sol he called the upcoming mixed gender matches a farce but i ask what could be more romantic than men and women bowling each other over after over after and over. then running for the covers after that on that note i think we've officially run out of things to talk about well and now you both need to because my maiden's over as is this interview but if you do want to save the seahorses visit www.theseahorsetrust.org